Nuclear loopholes. When President Joe Biden designated a new national monument near the Grand Canyon, which was meant to protect one million acres of lands that are sacred to indigenous people and permanently ban new uranium mining claims in the area, those opposed to nuclear let loose with a collective huzzah on finally a big, big win. But then a longtime Diné activist who has been right on top of the issues meant to be addressed by this new national monument points out some serious loopholes in this new designation. And she tells you, The National Monument only stops new mining claims. It doesn't stop existing permits. Like, for example, Pinyon Plain Canyon Mine is one of those that can continue to move forward regardless of the National Monument. And there's a handful of mines. Pinyon Plain is just the closest ahead of the game and could start mining any week now This is very important that people realize the National Monument does not stop all mining. Well, when Leona Morgan, a Diné activist with Hall No, points out how even what appears to be a big victory against nuclear isn't quite as good as it seems, and how typical is that, you realize that when it comes to nuclear, even apparently great news can have loopholes big enough to drive a uranium ore-carrying convoy of trucks through. And that's when you see how even in the midst of victory for those who oppose nuclear, there can lurk evidence of still more time that we'll be spending in that awful, deadly, dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we get stuck into the difference between the illusion and reality of the new National Monument's protections to the Grand Canyon, its water supply, and indigenous people who live throughout the area. We talk with Diné activist Leona Morgan of Hall No. Leona is someone who always pushes against established narratives to determine the underlying truth. And that is what she shares with us here, information that completely contradicts a carefully constructed image that puts much, if not most, if not all, of the opposition to rest while still keeping people and that area of the country in danger of further uranium mine radiation contamination. We will also have nuclear news from around the world 
numbness of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness and more honest nuclear information than the Republicans will ever get around to discussing because they can't even select a Speaker of the House after three weeks of trying. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 24, 2023, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting in the U.S., where last week the U.S. government says it tested a chemical explosion at the Nevada National Security Site, formerly known as the Nevada Test Site, as part of an effort to improve nuclear explosion detonation. It was not the testing of a nuclear bomb. It was the testing for testing for a nuclear bomb. But that didn't stop Russian state media from reporting that the Kremlin is closely monitoring that experiment from Wednesday, October 18, and claims that the test used not only chemicals, but radioisotopes to validate new predictive explosion models that can help detect atomic blasts in other countries. This comes smack on the heels of Russia's decision to revoke its ratification of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. This, Russia says, is to put it at parity, at equivalency, to the United States, which also has never ratified the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. This despite the fact that experts cite the CTBT, as it's referred to, as, quote, one of the most successful and valuable agreements in the long history of nuclear nonproliferation, arms control, and disarmament since the conclusion of the treaty in 1996. It has been signed by 187 countries, and nuclear testing has become taboo, at least for now. The treaty has not entered into force yet because of the failure of eight states upon whose ratification the entry into force of the treaty depends, all of them being nuclear-armed states. China, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, Egypt, India, Iran, Israel, Pakistan, and now Russia, which revoked their ratification on October 18. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin's favorite priest, head of the Russian Orthodox Church Patriarch Kirill, has not only justified Putin's decision to invade Ukraine in February of 22 on spiritual and ideological grounds, but he now says that Russia's nuclear weapons were created under, quote, ineffable divine providence, and said that were it not for the bomb, quote, it is difficult to say if our country would still exist. Here in the U.S., in some news on progress in decommissioning nuclear reactors, in New York, Holtec, the company that owns the decommissioned Indian Point nuclear power plant, has transferred all 3,998 spent nuclear fuel assemblies to dry cask storage. These spent fuel assemblies, all of which contain highly radioactive plutonium, are now being stored in 127 what are being called reinforced concrete and steel casks on the site's spent fuel storage installations. No word on how secure those concrete and steel casks are, how thin or thick the walls of the casks are. Here in Southern California, San Onofre's are only five-eighths of an inch thick, the same as the height of your closed MacBook Pro from the top of your desk. So we'll see if anybody has that information and we'll get back to you on it. But at least the rods are out of the spent fuel pool. In Vernon, Vermont, the decommissioning of the former Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant has been progressing steadily with a potential finish date 
four years ahead of its 2023 deadline. According to Scott State, the CEO of Northstar, which is the company undertaking the $600 million decommissioning project, once completed, the site will be an empty field lot with only the power substations, which are under lease to Vermont Electric Power Company, remaining on the property. No word on any residual radioactivity or other toxins in the soil of what is promised to be an empty field. And in California, a decision is upcoming on whether the Diablo Canyon two nuclear reactors are going to be allowed to continue to operate, despite having been scheduled for shutdown in 2024 and 2025. And it appears that a decision is going to be pushed forward to this December, only two months away, when some data important to making this decision won't be available until February. Ah, those nuclear prognosticators. This is a very complex, if not to say convoluted, issue between the California Public Utilities Commission and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So we're going to link to an article from TheIndependent.com entitled Diablo Canyon Does the Time Warp by Lauren Hansen and Mary Jones. It's long but very readable and will give you a complete picture of what's going on at Diablo Canyon. In stock market nuclear news, earlier this month, New Scale, the only nuclear company that has so far received a design certification from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for its small modular nuclear reactors, experienced a surge in its share prices earlier this month after Standard Power chose its small modular nuclear reactor technology to power two facilities it plans to develop, one in Ohio and one in Pennsylvania. And then last week, a short-selling firm called Iceberg Research published its New Scale Power Report, describing the deal as having no chance of being completed. In Iceberg's view, Standard Power does not have the means to fulfill contracts of such size, and its managing director, Adam Swickle, was found guilty of securities fraud some time ago. Iceberg wrote that Standard Power is struggling, and we believe its equity has little to no value without government support. And even if that support continues, the DOE's usual policy is that costs have to be shared with the private sector, meaning that existing shareholders will be diluted. It's the only thing nuclear that can be diluted because everything else is dispersed. Iceberg is highly respected in the investing community, and as a result of their report, in two days, New Scale stock was down 21% to an all-time low. Looks like that branch of the nuclear Ponzi scheme just got shut down. In Ohio, the drive to justify the continuing push to turn the Piketon-Portsmouth area into a nuclear hub and disguise the problems with the area is continuing to move forward. Scioto County Commissioner Brian Davis, that's where the site is, said Piketon is set to once again become a player in the nuclear industry, and that's great news. This despite the admitted nerves that many people have towards nuclear energy because of its dangers, especially when nuclear plants are not properly maintained. It also skirts the fact that cleanup at the Piketon site has not been concluded, and as of an interview with Dr. Michael Ketterer, a radiation researcher who was on nuclear hot seat number 642 from two weeks ago, 
Radiation levels in the area are increasing due to the lack of proper protections during the demolition process of these previous facilities. Now, despite these lingering radiation problems, a new centrist energy plant is up and running to produce high-assay, low-enriched uranium, referred to as HALU fuel. This is the fuel required for use by small modular nuclear reactors, none of which currently exist, but are being flogged by the nuclear industry as the latest and the greatest. Plans for two of these small modular nuclear reactors, now being referred to as micro-reactors, because I guess the Lego analysis for modular stopped playing to the crowd, and nobody's bothering to say that these smaller reactors, which don't yet exist, will produce more radioactive waste than their aging big brothers. But that doesn't stop County Commissioner Brian Davis from talking about making Piketon the nuclear hub of Ohio. They can't even clean up their old mess, and they're preparing to create much more. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. Each year, the military opens the Trinity site to the public. That's where the first atomic bomb in the world, the test that was the precursor to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, was exploded in 1945. Once in April and again in October, civilians, the curious, and those who watch the Oppenheimer film can trek out to the middle of nowhere to see an indentation in the ground where the madness began. This year, the more than 4,000 visitors, up by 25% since the Oppenheimer film was released, was greeted at the gates to Trinity by members of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, which represents families in southern New Mexico communities who lived in places touched by the bomb, including by diseases such as leukemia and other cancers. These downwinders held signs and offered pamphlets on their fight to be recognized and compensated by the federal government, which bombed its own people. A good thing they were there with honest information, because fairly typically of the nuclear tourists was Harvard Holmstad, 18 years old, who said of the site, It was moving, because to think that something so destructive started just five miles that way. And then he added that he is pursuing a nuclear science degree at the University of New Mexico, quote, because despite its tainted past, I do think it's the best way forward we have for powering a clean environment. They're not teaching him the nuclear truth in that school. Trinity is now a tourist trap with an evil history and radioactive benefits. And that's why Mr. Harvard Holmstad, 18 years old, and all of you others who went Oh, let's take a picture of that place where everything started that might destroy us all, and soon. You are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. In Japan, that country and Tokyo Electric Power Company continue with discharges of radioactive tritium-contaminated water from Fukushima Daiichi into the Pacific Ocean. Now, the International Atomic Energy Agency has stepped in to test the water and the fish in their what's being called first safety and monitoring mission, and the IAEA has stated that there were no issues observed. But what are they looking for? What are they looking at? And how thorough is their testing? On next week's Nuclear Hot Seat, 
We will talk with marine biologist Tim Deere-Jones, based in the UK, and an international researcher in radiation in marine environments. He has a lot to say about what the International Atomic Energy Agency is and is not doing, and it's a real eye-opener. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first... The nuclear industry never lets up with their propaganda. Using talking points, op-eds, talk show bookers, cleverly edited videos, as you will hear, and other tactics to brainwash our politicians, reporters, and the public into giving them whatever they want, which is money, 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 and, oh, by the way, more money. And let's face it. The nuclear industry already has all the money in the world to fund their public relations agencies and their agenda. It's a business model with a terrific ROI, return on investment. Because for whatever millions the nukesters spend on their public relations propaganda, they stand to get back billions of dollars of taxpayer money. That is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We're now in our 13th year of reporting on the nuclear world based on stories that the mainstream media either doesn't cover or doesn't cover deeply enough to get to the truth of what's happening. Every week, this is where you can get a one-hour hit of honest nuclear information, interviews with genuine experts, a roundup of international news, numbnuts, the hot story, bad puns, a touch of musical theater, Where else can you find all of this in a weekly counterbalance to the nuclear industry lies? But up against the nuclear industry's unlimited financial resources, this show operates on a bake sale budget. And that budget is dependent on you, the listeners, to keep us going. That's why if you've come to value Nuclear Hot Seat's information, the time to support us with a donation would be right now. So join us. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the red Donate button to help us with donations of any amount, be it one time only or recurring monthly. Give what you can now, and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. When I was producing Nuclear Hot Seat number 638 from December 12, 2023, that was the Nuclear Good News episode, I was, of course, excited to be sharing information about the just-created Baja Nuevo Itacukveni Grand Canyon National Monument. And my apologies for the pronunciation. I'll get it right, I promise. That new Grand Canyon National Monument is set to protect one million acres of land from incursion from all new uranium mining. I mean, that is good news, right? And it is, but it's not the full story. Fortunately, when I went after an interview on this topic, I contacted Leona Morgan. She is Diné and a community organizer and activist who has been fighting nuclear colonialism since 2007. She helped to successfully prevent a new uranium mining and processing project in Church Rock and Crown Point, New Mexico. And Leona also co-founded and did much of her work under the Diné No Nukes, which helped to establish the Hall No Initiative and the Radiation Monitoring Project. I spoke with Leona on October 20th, 2023. Leona Morgan, it's always great to have you here with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's always nice to be here. Why don't you introduce yourself as you wish to be known and acknowledged by the listening community? Yeah, 
Hi, it's always nice to be here. I am Dine. My family is traditionally from what we call today northwestern New Mexico. I live in Albuquerque and I call myself an anti-nuclear activist. And I'm a grad student, but that's another thing. What is Hall No? And what is it intended to do? Hall No, just by its name, is a transport fight. We are against the transport of uranium coming from one mine, specifically today called Pinyon Plain, formerly called Canyon Mine. This is owned by Energy Fuels, a Canadian uh, nuclear company, and it's south of the Grand Canyon. And their plan is to mine uranium and then take it to the White Mesa Mill, which they also own. And so Hall No is an initiative to raise awareness, ultimately to stop the mine. If we could also stop the mill, of course, that would be important as well, because the mill is a, a separate issue. And I hope we can talk about that, too. But Ultimately, the threat to our people would be the transport of uranium coming from the Grand Canyon area. The route right now, it could change, but we have it on our website if folks want to see a map. It's basically going from the Grand Canyon south to I-40 and then west through Flagstaff and then up through the Navajo Nation to southeast Utah to the White Mesa Mill, which is just adjacent to the White Mesa community, uh, Ute Mountain Ute indigenous people who live within a few miles of the mill site. All Know focuses on the indigenous communities at the beginning of the Hall route and at the end, not just the Diné communities, uh, all of us are Diné in Hall Know, and so a large portion of the route is through Western Navajo. Um, so we're in communication with a lot of those communities but what we're trying to do is to uplift the concerns of not just the indigenous peoples, but the sacred places, the, the different elements along the route, because this is a mine that is allowed to move forward despite the recent passing of the National Monument. And so we are here to continue that resistance and to continue our education to the communities and to continue fighting the mine, as well as saying no to the transport. That's why we say hall no. Some people might say hell no. This is what hall no is about, is to talk about the issue, raise awareness, and then inspire action. What kind of distance are we talking here between the mine and the mill, approximately? Depending on the route, what is mapped out on our website is approximately 300 miles, and it goes through various jurisdictions. The Navajo Nation right now, we have two laws regarding uranium. So we have a law that says no new mining and then also no transport, but we can only uphold these laws within Navajo jurisdiction. These routes are mostly on federal and state highways. So you would not have jurisdiction over them once they go on to the federal and the state highways? Pretty much all nuclear transport goes on federal and state highways. So when we're talking about Navajo Nation law, these are all of the 
the roads under the Navajo Nation. Of course, we don't want these big trucks or other types of transport coming through the Navajo Nation. There is transport all the time on I-40 and on the railroad. And what was a big thing for me in, in the Holtec fight, which is a different fight dealing with consolidated interim storage in New Mexico, you know, this law is important to our people because we've lived through the experience of past mining, past contamination, past transports, accidents, all of these things that lead to current day contamination of water, lands, going into health issues, not just our human health, but our environment, our, our food sources, and of course, our genetic health. There was recently a bill passed or signed by President Biden that created a national monument. And the assumption, certainly from outside the community, has been, hurrah, this is going to protect the land. Is that the case or are there gaps in it that we should really be aware of? This is an excellent question. And this is why Hall No exists. We are here as volunteers to do work that is filling in the gap. There are a lot of gaps when it comes to different types of environmental work over the decades. I mean, I, I am just coming into this fight brand new. Hall No started in 2016. We did this huge tour in 2017 doing action and awareness, direct action trainings and, and presentations along the hall route. And we were successful in bringing to light illegal water spraying at the mine site. So the company was spraying illegally that uh, uranium water was drifting into the U.S. Forest Service area. Because of us, because of our work, people were able to identify the company illegally hauling uranium water from the mine to the mill. And this was done in trucks that were not marked properly. So we have been able to accomplish a lot by asking the communities to do the work on behalf of themselves. So nobody is going to be paid to do this work. When communities are being threatened, when communities have these big proposals and they have their backs up against the wall, nobody is paying people to stand up and speak out and say no. Yes, there are many NGOs. And in the early days, like I said, this is a decades long fight. The Havasupai, they took the lead and they almost went to the Supreme Court. So their most recent court decision, they lost. But in this court environment, they didn't want to go to the Supreme Court. And so this was in just the recent years that all of the legal and political avenues have been exhausted by the NGOs, such as the Grand Canyon Trust, the Sierra Club, you know, different funders that fund these groups and recreational groups, all of these people that put together all of the work to go into the National Monument, including tribes that supported this. This was an effort to protect the Grand Canyon and its precious water resources because of uranium mining. And they were successful the monument was signed into law at a location called Red Butte. This is a sacred site for not just the Havasupai, but many people. And the Grand Canyon as a whole and the water are sacred to, to many nations, but the Havasupai did take the lead. And so I just really want to hold space. And I do have a lot of respect for the work they did. And because of the 
like I said, they went all the way as far as they could, but just couldn't continue in the legal fight. And so this national monument stops thousands of mining claims, you know, the potential of protecting a million acres forever is an incredible feat. However, Paul, no, our perspective is, I mean, my personal perspective is that it's a compromise. In another perspective, the National Monument, because it only stops new mining claims, it doesn't stop existing permits, valid and existing rights. Like, for example, Pinyon Plain Canyon Mine is one of those that can continue to move forward regardless of the National Monument. And there's a handful of mines. Pinyon Plain is just the closest ahead of the game and could start mining any week now. And so this is very important that people realize the National Monument does not stop all mining. This is why I call it a compromise. It doesn't stop all mining. And number one, as indigenous people, we're not out there trying to make national monuments. I think a lot of your listeners have heard of this thing called land back. Indigenous peoples want their land back. This is another compromise. We are not trying to go after the colonizers' protective, administrative protective ways. So national monuments, different types of easements, and, and these different things. This is not what we want as Indigenous peoples. So that is another type of compromise. But ultimately, the other view that the National Monument making the fight worse for some of us is that the majority of people think this fight is over. The majority of people, they see that, okay, we won. Okay, we're done. But it's the opposite for us. In 2016, we knew the company was nowhere near starting to mine. So through our monitoring, we can see you know, visually on the ground, very obvious things. There's more cars at the site. There's more development of the actual mine. There's some things they need to complete and that's why they haven't started. So once they complete those final steps, then it's any day now that they will start to haul uranium ore from the mine in trucks covered only by tarps through whatever route they figure out to get to White Mason Mill. The city of Flagstaff did pass a city level official statement that they oppose the transport through the city. And there's less of a mile of city roads that goes between Interstate 40 and the other Arizona highway. So what we suspect is that the company is working with some landowners north of Flagstaff, a very well-known family in Arizona, the Babbitts. And so it's we also see visually that there's an alternate route that has been established. So it, the uranium may not even go through the city. We have a lot of non-Indigenous people supporting this effort in Flagstaff. There's a lot of people in Flagstaff that don't want this to happen. At the same time, Flagstaff is going through some other issues because of uh, development at the Snowball, which is a different issue. There's a lot of things happening there. So if this route just skips Flagstaff, it may not even be seen by the larger mainstream community. 
leaving Indigenous people basically to fend for ourselves, to put out the awareness, to stop the trucks if we have to. So with, it used to be called Canyon Mine, now it's called Pinion Plain. With that being grandfathered in as they can continue mining, is there anything in law that can be done to stop the mining? There's many possibilities. I'm not a lawyer. The Navajo Nation right now doesn't have the capacity to enforce its transportation law. If, let's say, a truck went off the main highway and ended up on the reservation, it's not like we have Navajo police watching the entire route. So we have our laws in our jurisdiction. And if something happened, I'm sure on Navajo Nation, that's a different situation. But on the interstate and on any other part, like in Utah, because it, it like I said, it's, it's starting in Arizona and then it ends up in Utah. Right now, I have no idea what's possible in Utah. I think um, they're used to having transports of all kinds of different radioactive materials going to White Mesa Mill because White Mesa Mill has not received uranium ore from a mine in some time. It's basically processing nuclear waste from other facilities to stay afloat. So as long as it can produce uranium, then it's legally using its license. And so this is what they call alternate feed. It's just a way to process the stuff because they also have a license to store the waste of the things that are processed. So it's becoming this kind of alternate waste dump because there's a lack of waste facilities in the world. So there has been going to White Mesa Mill. I don't know the status of all of the transports, but people talk about waste coming from, you know, all over the country, but then as far away as places like Estonia and Japan. And and so other countries are bringing their waste to the Southwest to process as alternate feed, but really as a place to keep the waste. And, and this is in the desert where they need to use a lot of water. So right now, the mill itself is licensed under the, the, it's dealing with the state of Utah. And so I don't know how many folks know what an agreement state is and, and all of that. So the permitting, I believe they they had gone through some re-permitting and I don't think they're at any high operation levels recently. The company, Energy Fuels, they want business. They need to make money. They're not making any money because the price of uranium has been so low for so long. But once this thing started happening in Ukraine and the price of uranium started going up, whether it's artificially inflated or not, that makes uranium companies wanting to start to become activated again. So all over the world, some uranium companies are just holding on to what they call their in-place assets. So whatever uranium is in the ground, you know, it's probably just worth this much. But if it's worth whatever amount that they need to, to cross that threshold into profit, that's when we are going to be threatened. So when I say we, it's mostly indigenous peoples around the world living near these places. So yeah, so this is an issue. We're not sure with the jurisdiction what the law can do. In our perspective, all of the legal routes have been exhausted. The state of Arizona, whenever we caught them in any of these things that we thought were violating their permit, ultimately what they said 
And we did have a lot of support from Allison Gitlin from Sierra Club, who we worked with for, we still work with. And some of the things that she helped to report to the different Arizona departments, basically, I'm paraphrasing, this is not what they said, but she put it forward. These are the things that they're doing legally. And the Arizona DEQ or whatever is like, oh, oh no, this isn't in their permit. Oh, well, let's update their permit right away so that they're now in compliance. So everything is working on behalf of the communities. This is the same entity that said, we do not deny permits. We are an agency that regulates. Wow. I think there's still something that can be done legally, but where Hall No is, we have a two-prong approach. We did everything we could to create awareness. We did education, doing presentations to even the Navajo Nation. I have done presentations to different entities back in 2017. So they are very well aware of this issue. I'm focusing on Navajo Nation, but we, as an initiative, also have the other approach of direct action. My approach, talking to policymakers and different folks, I feel that we have different avenues dealing with the mill because that's in Utah. They have different laws and different things. The mine is in Arizona. So our focus is mostly on the Arizona side and then Navajo Nation. But there's a lot of things that could happen. I mean, some people say law is fickle, but it takes a lot of resources to make laws and then to enforce laws. We're at the point of time where this company could be starting any day now. And so we need action. In terms of support for the action, certainly the Grand Canyon area is deeply dependent upon their outdoor culture and the companies and activities that people go to the Grand Canyon for. And there are certain companies that are very invested in their products being used in these places. Considering that Hall No and the other groups are supporting the protection of the Grand Canyon and its watershed and, of course, its people, what, if any, support have you gotten from companies such as Patagonia or REI or Sierra Designs or any of those that are focused on the outdoor market? Have they been at all supportive financially or in in kind ways to your group? First of all, Paul No does not reach out to these entities. We do not work with NGOs, particularly big funded groups, because those groups, if they were going to work with us, we would be working together. And so we have a lot of support from various entities, but we're not trying to bring in outsiders. We are trying to center the indigenous people who have been here for millennia. And these are the people that we reach out to and we're in communication with. And so when we're talking about the National Monument, several of the what we call colonial governments, so the the tribal governments that are in place, they supported this National Monument in order to protect it from new mining. However, and this is something that's happening after Biden signed the monument, I had reached out to different leadership as well as CLEA and our group has been in contact with a lot of different indigenous leadership over the years. Of those we spoke to, some had no idea that mining can continue. 
whether they educated themselves, whether the NGOs educated them, how did it come to be that indigenous nations, people in leadership positions thought what they were doing was to protect everything. And here I come to say, no, this is not true. This is what we're doing. And the reason I'm talking to you is because of this exact scenario that we knew would happen. And so we have support in these indigenous nations because those people say they supported the mine, the money, excuse me. We do have support in indigenous, in these communities and in indigenous nation leadership in the sense that everyone knows the fight must continue. Whether they will put in the resources they did is another question. So we're not asking Patagonia and REI. We're talking to our elders and we want their support. And the type of support we need is not monetary. And so right now, I know every time we talk to somebody, every time I have a conversation, the understanding of the importance of this issue, it's there. And I think the shock for most people is that they were not told ahead of time up front that the National Monument does not stop all the mines. So this is something that we're here to say and to continue to say what Biden did, did not protect all the mines. And it even made our fight worse because it made people think the fight is over at this crucial moment in time when we really want folks to do whatever they can in their capacity. So if people want to write letters, if people want to contact their members in Congress, legally, the legal teams at the NGOs, so all these NGOs that worked on this national monument, they have paid lawyers on their staff. And one of them asked me the exact same question you did. And she's like, well, Leona, if you don't agree with this, what legal thing could we do? And I looked at her, a lawyer, and said, I am not a lawyer. And so this is the thing. They are trying to do whatever they could, which was to make the National Monument. And everybody was aware that existing rights, existing permits would continue to go forward. And so what is the plan B to continue fighting those? I think this would be a good question if we had one of their staff people on the show to ask them that. As far as I know, there is no fight. I think they're continuing right now with what's called the co-management plan. One of the things about the new monument is that tribes will have different co-management abilities. And so now all of that's being worked out. So in the past, you know, when our land was taken and the federal government came over, you know, we got kicked out and, and whatever, couldn't do ceremony and things like that. So today it's more common that Indigenous nations work with, you know, whatever federal or state entities to, to come together and let the tribes have co-management, meaning if they need to close the park because of their calendar, then that happens. No questions asked. So these are good things. These are steps in the right direction. And so these are what the tribes and the NGOs see as victories. Yet, how will one mine impact the entire Grand Canyon? with its unique springs and, and, and waterways and all of its recreation. And so, yeah, I think it would be great if REI and Patagonia 
jumped in and got all of the non-native white recreators to say something because this is not our avenue as indigenous people, but that's what it takes is for everyone to speak up. And we've been very consistent on our messaging. We want to stop the mine. We want to stop the mill. And of course, the transport. So this is Hall No. And at the moment, I don't know and I don't see any other campaigns to stop Kenyan Mine, Pinyon Plain Mine. But the mill, that fight continues as well. And that's a whole different story. But we are always connecting the issue and trying to connect the local people as well as if we can support what we can as volunteers, we will go out and do treatings. We will go out and be there when we can. Thank you for that explanation, because those are points that have eluded us. And I certainly thought, wow, this is good news. You were the one who pointed out the fact that there were some other aspects that needed to be taken into consideration. One of the terms that I certainly heard initially from you, and I'm hearing repeatedly now from Indigenous people involved in these fights, is the term nuclear colonialism. Would you please explain what that is and what that means? Oh, yes. Thank you. Um, Yes, I would love to explain it. I think there's so many different ways and, uh, you know, um, depending what your perspective is, I simply say it's the ongoing colonization of our land, our water, our air, everything today in the name of nuclear development. And so this means taking land, taking water for uranium mining, taking space for processing, taking, you know, contaminating the atmosphere with fallout from nuclear testing. This is taking everything from our future generations to basically fuel American imperialism. And so for me, I say I'm an anti-nuclear activist because it doesn't matter where the uranium goes. If it goes to a nuclear power plant to make energy, if it goes into weapons development, we are going to be impacted the same way. In New Mexico, as a state, we have so many nuclear facilities. As an indigenous person, uranium fuels both nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. And so when we talk about nuclear colonialism, Some academics might compare it to, you know, white settler colonialism of the 19th century. And I have several slides in a a presentation I've been doing for years that I start with the doctrine of discovery. Basically, this was something from Europe that says it's okay to commit genocide and take these people's land because they're not human. So this is a law that's continuously used today, not just in what we call Turtle Island or North America, the Western Hemisphere, as well as Africa and other nations. So we're still dealing with this thing called the Doctrine of Discovery. It was in the news recently. You know, there were some strong words about it, but it's not like they stop every policy based on this institutionalized racism and then then retroactively (laughs) backdate, like the Catholic Church is not going to do that. So they can say what they want today, but the impacts of the doctrine of discovery are ongoing. The number of laws that I like to cite go, you know, into the transcontinental railroad, the 1872 mining law, 
the Dawes Act or the General Allotment Act. So these are all laws from the second half of the 19th century, and they are very much still impacting us today. This is the continuation of that so-called manifest destiny, the continuation of genocide. And to me, that's one of the most important things is what people still haven't learned as students in the American United States school system, we're still trying to educate people on these things. And so to go even further, that these things are ongoing today and they can be stopped So some folks can, like I said, can compare the academics to different white settler colonialism impacts here in the U.S. I do think there's a lot of connections when we talk about neocolonialism and and all of those things. But quite simply, as a Native person, the physical taking of physical land, physical earth, the uranium ore, you know, the raping of Mother Earth for commodification, so colonialism, settling, taking the land. But it's much, much more invasive than that because the past uranium mining hasn't been cleaned up. It's still being studied. And today, we don't know the impacts. And so when Western science learns a new thing, let's say sterilization, that's a medical thing. It, it revolutionized whatever, you know, surgeries and things like that. So, so how about this thing that we know, oh, exposure to ionizing radiation to people that are not subject to the laws created under reference men. Hey, let, that doesn't work. So let's stop it. To me, in Western law and medicine and everything that we know, It makes absolutely no sense that we would continue to allow these radioactive, destructive behaviors by federal and state agencies and companies on our people. So it's this ongoing genocide is what I call nuclear colonialism, ongoing genocide on behalf of anything that is going to profit or benefit from it. And ultimately, it comes back to the same entity, which is the United States federal government. I mean, if you're in France, it might be the energy company. If you're in Russia, it's Rosatom. And I was thinking of EDF in France. And, you know, depending where you are, it's going to be that big state-owned company. In the United States, it's just the United States government and military. So... You were very clear before that Hall No does not look to outside agencies. You're not into recruiting. You're just this group of volunteers. I'm wondering what, if anything, would be appropriate for listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat to do to support you. Right now, Hall No is revamping our educational materials. We'll be doing more updates and, and social media There's all kinds of ways people can become activated in their own communities. And I think we want to see action in communities that is appropriate for that community, but that would be up to those communities. So that's the number one thing I think is we want to see communities along the hall route to become activated, whatever that means for them. So we're not trying to organize everybody, but what we're working on is letting folks know what's going on. And then when things start to get moving, yeah, we're going to need whatever support folks can give. We have some political officials saying, hey, write me letters. I need you to write me letters so we can do something. 
I'm not sure on that route. So, so again, two-pronged ap approach, education, action. Both of them require resources. Is there a way for people to sign up to be on your database or on your email notification list so that as you are doing outreach on any of the actions that you might want people to make, it can go to people who are already pre-interested in it? Great question. As volunteers, nobody's updating a database, nobody's sending out emails. And today, I don't even know how many people actually read emails. So a lot of stuff is going through social media and we hashtag everything, hashtag hall no. What we ask is that folks share our posts. I mean, I think the number one thing is that people are educated first and foremost. And maybe reach out to friends and relatives that you might know in Arizona and share our information. But yeah, once you see some social media posts, I think that's the biggest thing and the easiest thing that folks can do is just share and support that way. Leona Morgan, you have done spectacular work. You've certainly been on my horizon since I started doing Nuclear Hot Seat. You're one of the first people who popped up. I appreciate the work you have done. I congratulate you on what's been accomplished. I grieve with you over what has not yet been accomplished. And for now, I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much. And I will be here next time. And when there's any update on the mine, I will let you know. And thank you for covering the story and all of your work, which is so important, Libby. And I thank you for that. Denek community organizer and activist, Leona Morgan. We will have links up to the group Hall No on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 644. Activist, activist, shout out, shout out, shout out. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is having their annual gathering on November 6, 2023. And their keynote conversation is going to be with filmmaker Christopher Nolan, he of the smash hit but still flawed film Oppenheimer. He will be interviewed by Rachel Bronson, who is president and CEO of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, where she oversees the publishing programs, management of the Doomsday Clock, and a growing set of activities around nuclear weapons, nuclear energy, climate change, and disruptive technologies. One hopes she will take the opportunity to ask Nolan why he did not show a single frame of what the destruction was on the ground from the bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You can register for viewing over Zoom on your computer. We'll have a link to the registration up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 644. It's with a sigh of sadness that we have to bid goodbye to Allison Gitlin, of the Sierra Club Grand Canyon, Arizona chapter, who is leaving her position as program manager for the campaign to restore and protect the greater Grand Canyon ecoregion. Nothing dramatic, just a heartfelt time to move on. This show and I send our personal good wishes to you for all success in whatever you endeavor to do with thanks for your service. My big news is that I will be going to New York as of November 27, to cover the second meeting of states' parties to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which will be taking place at the United Nations November 27 through December 1st. During that time, on November 28th, I will also be attending the 2023 Nuclear Free Future Awards Ceremony. That will be taking place at the Church Center 
on the second floor of 777 UN Plaza, right across the street. The event is free and open to the public, with live music performed by American multi-instrumentalist and composer Peter Gordon, and by the Marshallese a cappella group Mark Harmony. I hope to see you there, and if you wish to help me meet the funds that I'm going to need for this trip, please go to the website and follow the prompts to donate. I'll have more about this in the coming weeks. And a heads up that next week's show, Nuclear Hot Seat number 645, posting on Halloween, October 31st, is going to be our Halloween program in which I ask upwards of 40 separate activists, what scares you most about nuclear? It's going to be quite the show. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 24th, 2023. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's the easiest way you can guarantee that you will get the show and not miss a single episode. You can sign up for it on your favorite podcast channel or cut to the chase and help us out. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and what pops up immediately is a big yellow box. Inside that box, put in your first name and an email address and every week you will get one, just one email, which contains a link to that week's show and a short description of its content. It's easy. And by filling that out, you will help us with our database and with showing up at a higher listing based on Google's algorithms. Now, participatory democracy here. If you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send that information in an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Please don't do Facebook. I lose those. Send it via email. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we always need your help. Anything at all is deeply appreciated, as well as is your willingness to listen and support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby Halevi and Nuclear Hot Seat. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you cite the program, the website, and the name of anyone you quote, and that includes me. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that as Dr. Paul Dorfman says, Research shows that rapid ice melt in western Antarctica is now inevitable. And with that goes coastal nuclear. There you have it. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.